Across the summer, we've been working our way through the book of Judges, which has been an enjoyable and interesting ride, and we're just tipping over into the beginning of 1 Samuel, because there are a couple of judges around there at the beginning, uh, before the the, the monarchy arrives, and we're going to be looking uh, this morning at Hannah, uh, the the mother of Samuel, and our first reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 to 20. There was a certain man from Ramathayim, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. That was the bit that made me decide I'd read it this morning rather than asking somebody else to do it. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Peninnah, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And this went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and wouldn't eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to Hannah, Why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? And once they'd finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. And in bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, Oh Lord Almighty, if you would only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, and do not forget your servant, but give her a son then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. And Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice wasn't heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I haven't been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. She said, May your servant find favour in your eyes. Then she went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. I'm going to do a reading. 1 Samuel, chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. The bows of the warriors are broken, 
but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry hunger no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honour. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. I'm trying to figure out how many years it was that Hannah had to endure that annual pilgrimage to Shiloh. The celebratory feast when everyone was happy, but her, because she had no children. And every time she went in, her husband's other wife rubbed it in and reinforced the point. It's very hard to be in a situation where everyone else is praising God and you just feel out of it. Especially if if God hasn't been good to you or that's how it feels. How many years did that go on for? We we read that, that Elkanah gave portions of meat to his wife Peninnah and all her sons and daughters. So there must have been quite a few of them. You don't talk about all her sons and daughters, unless, well, she must have had at least four. Two sons, two daughters, that's the minimum. And if you allow a couple of years between each birth and you discount the possibility of twins, that's at least eight years that this went on for, but probably longer. It would have taken a while for Peninna to feel sufficiently secure as the mother of Elkanah's children to torment Hannah with impunity. And although it was everyone, evident to everyone that Elkanah loved Hannah more because he gave her a double portion as a sign of his love for her, that just would have reinforced Peninnah's bitterness towards her. I've given him children, why doesn't he love me? And that's one of the reasons why she takes it out so much upon Hannah. Reading between the lines, it's likely that Elkanah married Hannah first. She is the first named wife. How many years went by before he decided, oh, this isn't working, I need some children from somewhere, and he decided to marry Peninnah and get some children that way. All in all, then, I think you're looking at quite a long period of misery. And the narrative piles on the agony a bit. You hear about how year after year Peninnah would get at Hannah, try and upset her. Hannah would rush away from the meal table in tears. This went on and on and on. And Elkanah, bless him, not the wisest man. Why are you upset? He says to her. What's the matter? Can't he see? Doesn't he realise? 
And although he says, you know, aren't I worth more to you than than ten sons? Well, actually, you know, given the situation that his wife is in, no, he isn't. It's intolerable. And it was on one such occasion in deep bitterness of soul that Hannah entered the sanctuary of God just to pour out her feelings, her distress, her bitterness, her anguish to God in prayer, pleading with God that if he would just do something about her misery and give her a son, she would dedicate this child to the Lord for the whole of his life. If only she could have a child, she would willingly give the baby up. It was just the shame of not being able to have children that made her so vulnerable to Peninnah's attacks and left her feeling utterly bereft and worthless. So there she is at rock bottom, pouring out her lament to God in silent prayer. Eli the priest spots her, mouthing who knows what through her tears, and he has a go at her. Just when you think it couldn't get any worse. He supposes she's some drunken woman who's blundered into the sanctuary, has no legitimate business being there. So he rebukes her for what he takes to be her drunken behaviour. Actually, she is stone-cold sober, just in intense distress. And it's a measure of Hannah's gentle spirit that she replies to Eli's unfounded accusations so meekly. Instead of giving a real tongue-lashing, she shows the priest of the Lord deep respect. She addresses him as my Lord. She explains that she's been pouring out her soul to God in prayer. She says that the reason she's behaving the way she is is not because she's been hitting the bottle. It's just an indication of the depths of her anguish and grief and turmoil. And in response, Eli pronounces a blessing on her. Tells her to go in peace. Praise that the Lord would grant Hannah what she'd asked of him. Though there's no indication she told Eli precisely what her problem was, only the devastating effect it was having upon her. Go in peace, he says. May the God of Israel grant you what you've asked. I'm not sure whether Eli was prompted by the Spirit of God to pronounce that blessing upon Hannah. Or whether, as I might have done, he was just desperately backpedalling to try and say something positive to mitigate the effects of, of what he'd said when he'd unjustly accused her of being drunk. But whatever his motivation, Hannah took those words to heart. And for, them, for her, it was a, Lord from the, a word from the Lord. She responds by saying, may your servant find favour in your eyes. And she goes her way. She has something to eat. Her face is no longer downcast. So what, what did Eli's words impart to her? Hope? Peace? Faith? Comfort? Assurance? Any or all of those and more. But the next morning, having received that word and taken it to heart, she was able to join her husband in worshipping the Lord... When they went home and Elkanah slept with her, the Lord remembered Hannah. And at last she was able to conceive and have a son, a boy who would grow up to become Samuel, a great judge and prophet in Israel, dedicated to the Lord as she had promised that she would do so. How come it took all those years then? How come she had to go through all of that before the Lord chose to remember Hannah after that encounter with Eli? 
Had she never prayed before? I can't believe that she'd never prayed before. I'm sure she must have done so dozens, hundreds of times. Was it that God answered her prayer just because Eli spoke the words? May the God of Israel give you what you've granted. Was, was, was in some way his position of priest important? Was the fact that he was the priest of the Lord, did that give his words some effect? Was there a real potency in his blessing because he carried that authority? Was that why the Lord remembered Hannah this time round? Or does that feel a bit as if Eli's twisting God's arm? And why talk about the Lord remembering Hannah? Had he forgotten about it? Had he forgotten about her till then? Had she simply not crossed his mind? Why make her wait? Did the remarkable story of Samuel's birth somehow serve to underscore the significance of his life? Was, was this part of laying the ground for the great things he would achieve for the Lord? A remarkable birth, presaging a remarkable life. And perhaps, you know, the fact that he was dedicated to the Lord before he was even conceived, perhaps that was a factor in who he was when he grew up. But still, I wonder, was it fair or kind to put Hannah through all that misery just to use her in that kind of way? But then when you read Hannah's song of praise, you get a sense that she would say the joy of having a son of her own more than offset the misery of the previous years. And she went on to have other children afterwards as well. So did Eli's words have some kind of psychological effect on her? Did his prayer that the God of Israel would do for her what she'd ask somehow take the pressure off? Could she just relax a bit, stop trying so hard? Did that open the door at last for her to be able to have a baby. That kind of thing happens sometimes. And perhaps nagging away even more insistently behind all these questions about why the Lord answered her prayer or Eli's prayer on this particular occasion, just because Eli pronounced a blessing on her, you get the more nagging question. What about all those people whose prayers are never answered? After 8, 10, 12, 20 however many years. Sometimes they are given words of assurance, but still nothing happens. What do we make of that? We are amazed at Hannah's story, and rightly so. It is, it is a fantastic account of prayer being answered, prayer that defies the odds. And it's because it's exceptional that it finds its way into the pages of Scripture. If this kind of thing happened all the time, it would be unremarkable and therefore wouldn't necessarily be recorded. It wouldn't be worthy of mention. So this story makes the headlines precisely because this kind of thing doesn't happen very often. But there will be people who, when they hear this story, you might whisper in your heart, so why her and not me then? How come her prayer was answered when mine wasn't? Why, Lord, did you remember Hannah, but you never seemed to get around to remembering me? And those thoughts can stir up precisely the same kind of anguish of soul that Hannah experienced that night in the sanctuary. In the presence of God, we ask, why? I've asked lots of questions in this sermon, given very few answers. Prayer does that. Why is this prayer answered at this particular time? And that one isn't. Or why isn't this prayer answered now? And it's hard to say. Part of the solution may lie in the recognition that there's more to answering Hannah's prayer than just giving her what she wanted and longed for. Israel needed Samuel. Israel needed a mighty man of God. 
Eli was old and feeble, and as we will see tonight, he was unable to keep control of his sons. The long succession of judges had come and gone, and with them Israel's faith and commitment had ebbed and flowed. God wanted to raise up a new leader for his people who would make a decisive difference. God had his own agenda. And Hannah's prayer and Eli's blessing formed part of that bigger agenda. So why choose Hannah to be the mother of this mighty deliverer? Perhaps precisely because she'd clung on to faith where there seemed so little point in doing so at times. Perhaps because she hadn't given up. Perhaps because she'd kept on praying and and trusting and seeking God. Maybe it's because she had offered to dedicate her son to the Lord's service. Maybe that was significant as well. Maybe it's the first time she'd prayed that kind of prayer. And as she visited Samuel year after year at the tabernacle as he grew up, she would have been able to tell him the story of his remarkable birth, about how she dedicated him to the Lord. He would have grown up knowing that he was special, that he'd been brought into this world for a purpose, that his life was given over to God. That would have had an immense influence on him in those formative years. And maybe she was able to impart to him something of the grit and determination of her own faith because there was no doubt at all that he would need that as he grew up. So there is a sense in which Hannah's intense personal longing for a baby meshed with God's bigger plan for his people. And prayer works like that. Prayer works by aligning our desires, our longings with his wider purposes. And sometimes that means we get the desires of our heart, what we long for, but not always. Let's not make the mistake of downgrading prayer to the level of ordering something on Amazon Prime and getting it the next day. That is not what prayer is about. That's not how prayer works. The reason why prayer is surrounded by so many unanswered and unanswerable questions is that there is an element of mystery to it. The results are never guaranteed the immediate outcome is not a foregone conclusion. So should we pray then? Absolutely. How should we pray? Exactly as Hannah did, pouring out our souls before the Lord, telling him exactly how we feel, giving him our longings, our hopes, our griefs and our needs, saying, this is what I want, this is what I need, this is what I long for, because the Lord hears. And all the time we are doing that, He is weaving our situation into his master plan as he did for Hannah. So if you have years of unanswered prayer behind you, don't stop praying. If you have situations in your life or family which are broken beyond repair, continue to pray to God for them because he is best placed to work to resolve them. And if you've prayed and it feels as if the door has just been slammed in your face, what do you do then? What does that mean? Was it the wrong door, the wrong time, the wrong thing you were asking for? More questions I can answer. It can take a long time before we start praying, okay, if that door is shut, what happens now instead? In time, God will show you. But continue to pray. Don't stop. Because God hears. God knows. And God will weave your situation into his own overruling agenda. And when we pray with and for other people, it's right, I think, to take a leaf out of Eli's book and to pray, may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked for. 
go in peace, to speak words of blessing on people who are seeking God? Because we've seen, haven't we, what a world of difference those words made to Hannah. Her face no longer downcast, able to leave, rejoin her family, have something to eat. And the healing those words brought to her soul may have been the first step towards her prayer being answered. So there is scope for praying calmly and gently and with faith for one another. But waiting, God, what do you want me to say in this situation? Because if the Spirit of God stirs our hearts and minds with a sense of God's will, with a sense of what God wants us to say, then our prayers will not be mouthing empty platitudes, but our words can have a part to play in preparing the ground for God's will to come about. Words that are spoken in prayer in line with the Spirit of God are powerful. They have an effect. They make a difference. We don't always get it right. Sometimes the Spirit of God is, is saying this and, and we're saying that. Our good intentions don't, don't align with the Spirit of God. But the more we wait on God, the more we are in tune with God, the more in touch with God we are, the more our words, our thoughts, our desires, our prayers align with the Spirit of God. And that opens the door for God to work. But if our words are to be effective, praying for ourselves or for others, we need to choose them with care and make sure as far as we are able that they are genuine and we're not just seeking what we want, we're seeking what God wants as well. Let me end with a quotation from Evelyn Underhill. If we ask of the saints how they achieved spiritual effectiveness... They are only able to reply that insofar as they did it themselves, they did it by love and prayer. A love that is very humble and homely. A prayer that is full of adoration and confidence. Love and prayer on their lips are not mere nice words. They are the names of tremendous powers able to transform in a literal sense human personality and make it more and more that which it is meant to be, the agent of the Holy Spirit in the world. That's a powerful phrase. Love and prayer have the power to change us, to make us what we are meant to be, the agents of God's Holy Spirit in the world. That's God's will. That's God's desire for you as an individual, for us as a church, to be his agents in the world. That's his will and purpose for you. So bring to him your desires, bring to him your unanswered prayers, but recognise that his agenda is for him to work through you. And sometimes we just need to say, God, I'm giving it over to you. Hannah, just giving her child over to God the child that wasn't even conceived yet. God, I'm dedicating it to you. Whatever it is, dedicate that situation. Dedicate your life. Dedicate who you are, your longings to God. Place them in his hands. And as you commit them to him, pray, Lord, in this situation, change me and make me the agent of your Holy Spirit in the world so that what I long for, Lord, bring that into line with your will and purpose. That's part of seeking God. 
That's part of effective prayer. Lord, make us the agents of your Holy Spirit and his purposes in our lives, in this church, and in your world. Amen.